We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Your time machine gave me, Mr. Wells. I had the great fortune of parlaying with the great mind of Alex Jones. I have it recorded on my phonograph device. Would you care to listen? Demand truth. Demand Infowars. Infowars. Tomorrow's news today. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, very special guest that's going to be joining us. Oh, Alex, you're making me blush. You know, at the end of the day, I'm just a patriotic American. And you've been in the Army, you've been in the Marines, you've been all over the world, you've been Blackwater, you've been State Department security. You've seen it. Uh, okay, yeah, that, that is true. I'm a patriotic uh, American who's also an extremely big deal. But, you know, I'm not here to talk about how much I can bench press, although I will say it's a lot. <laughs> no, I'm here to talk about a new energy drink that will revolutionize your life. It's very interesting. I knew some of this. Tell me more. Okay, Alex. Well, let me ask you something. How many times has this happened to you? You're fighting a sadistic cabal of shadowy vampires who will stop at nothing to transform America into a hellhole. You're ready to fight back by replying to one of AOC's tweets. There's just one problem. You're extremely thirsty. Now, Alex, what would you do in that position? Drink a San Pellegrino like a liberal? Fizzy drink that is so essential and so good for your body. What? No, Alex, we rehearsed this. You're supposed to say... Screw that. I want to try your new product. It's incredible what it does for me, for energy and happiness. That's more like it. I was in a really bad mood yesterday. Uh, Had a fizzy drink 30 minutes later. Stop. Happy as a pig in slop. Okay, first of all, weird analogy. Second of all, you're supposed to be helping me hawk my product, Alex. It's insane. Not in... Okay, you know what's insane? The fact that you could get in on the ground floor of this delicious, viscous, red, vaguely rust-smelling miracle drink for only a trillion dollars. That's right. One time only. Why are we paying a trillion dollars for those pieces of garbage? Wow, Alex, that escalated quickly. Look, you're going to give yourself a heart attack. Hey, listen, stop shooting your mouth off claiming I'm the enemy. Okay, well, you know what? This interview's over. I got Peter Thiel on speed dial. He's ready to make my miracle drink the official beverage of his floating private kingdom. They'll have fun with it. Oh, I will, Alex. You know what? I'm going to enjoy my own drink right now here on your show. Ah, that's what I call a real diet supplement, Alex.
Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula. In 1931, Bela Lugosi was interviewed on the eve of his new film's release. Asked whether he ever wanted to reprise the titular role, Lugosi responded in a way that sounded more like the character's victims than the character himself. Lugosi said, No, not at any price. When I'm through with this picture, I hope to never hear of Dracula again. I cannot stand it. I do not intend that it shall possess me. The curse Lugosi feared the most wasn't the curse of becoming a vampire. It was the curse of being typecast as one. Lugosi didn't know it at the time, but being typecast as Dracula would cement his place in movie history. Lugosi turned out to be just the first of several iconic actors to don the cape and fangs. Christopher Lee, Frank Langella, Gary Oldman. This year, the novel itself received renewed attention with web designer Matt Kirkland's Dracula Daily, a substack that sends readers the original text in excerpts on dates exactly corresponding to those on which the excerpts are written in the novel. And when it comes to film, this year alone sees the release of at least four different Dracula adaptations and spin-offs, not to mention the 30th anniversary re-release of Gary Oldman's turn in Bram Stoker's Dracula. After a century of countless movies, video games, TV shows, and books about Bela Lugosi's least favorite role, Dracula continues to possess us. The original plot of Dracula has undergone so many on-screen contortions that it's helpful to review the plot of the novel Bram Stoker actually wrote. Dracula can be summed up in three words. East, West, East. In the first section, readers travel eastward with Jonathan Harker, a young, naive, English real estate agent who takes a train ride to the Transylvanian home of his newest client, Count Dracula. Harker slowly realizes that he's been imprisoned by an immortal vampire bent on infiltrating England. Escaping the watch of the Count's bloodthirsty brides, Harker eventually makes his way out of the castle, hoofing it back to his wife Mina in England. The second section moves west to England, where Dracula has arrived via a spectacular shipwreck in the seaside tourist destination of Whitby. Still fog, which the sunrise cannot pierce. Here, all night I stayed, and as dimness of the night I saw it. Him, God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better. After snacking on a crew of Russian sailors, Drac moves onto English soil and vampirizes Mina's friend Lucy. He then travels to London where he creates layers throughout the city. Eventually, Harker and his friends must slay the undead Lucy, staking and decapitating her in her tomb. In the final section of the novel, Harker and company expel Dracula from London and follow him eastward again back to Transylvania to defeat him before his curse on Mina Harker permanently vampirizes her. After a long, exciting chase through the Carpathian Mountains, Jonathan Harker beheads Dracula with an extra long and extra sharp knife. But since he doesn't use the required wooden stake, the conclusion leaves us wondering whether Dracula might rise again. 
If just that 30-second summary leaves you winded, you can imagine how readers of Stoker's time responded. By 10 o'clock, the story had so fastened itself upon our attention that we could not pause even to light our pipe. To those who are fond of the ghastly and the terrible, Dracula will be welcome reading. The impression of having deliberately laid himself out in Dracula to eclipse all previous efforts in the domain of the horrible. Reviewers were thrilled, disgusted, and fascinated. While it wasn't the most popular horror novel of 1897, more on that in a couple episodes, it immediately triggered a spectrum of strong emotional responses. And a major reason for that effect was its depiction of Christianity. When I have a class of, you know, 200 or more students, I think the biggest class I had for Dracula one year was like 475 students or something, one class. Out of all those students, whenever I asked how many of you read the novel Dracula, and I have a digital, you know, system that, you know, they can answer questions in their, you know, app and stuff like that, and it comes up on the screen. Out of like 475, you'd have like 10 that would say, yes, I've read the novel. Do they all know who the character is? Well, how is that possible? How is the novel so famous if you only really know the character? Well, it's really adaptations that have made the novel famous by proxy. But Dracula as a character has, re has retained his relevance because it's really become a vampire in general has really become a symbol of being human, you know? This is Dr. Stanley Stepanek, professor of Slavic languages at the University of Virginia. Dr. Stepanek's wildly popular course, Dracula, uses the character as a lens through which to explore vampire legends, and through those legends, to explore a range of human experiences, from religion to fears of racial difference. For that reason, he was an ideal person to help me explore the theological dimensions of Dracula. In original vampire folklore, I have only, in my studies at least, come across maybe one or two instances where Christian artifacts or symbols were used to try to seal a vampire in the grave. In one particular instance I can remember, and I don't remember the time period, we'll say probably 18th century, a vampire's, um, you know, vampire's so-called corpse was discovered in a grave, and then they threw a crucifix in with it and reburied it. Um, now, why would they do that in that case? But the majority of others, they would not do that at all. You would never see any reference to holy water or crucifixes or rosary beads or anything like that. What would they do? They would cover them in garlic. They would chop off their heads. They would stake them. They would dismember the body and I mean, scatter the parts around. They would put seeds in the grave. They, they would do all these things that don't seem Christian at all because they're not. The reason for that is simple. Most of these people already had Christian burials. So if the Christian symbols that they were buried with didn't keep them in the grave, obviously that's not going to work. According to Dr. Stepanek, religion actually wasn't that important to the vampire mythos before Stoker, a devout Irish Protestant, introduced crucifixes and Eucharist hosts into the war on bloodsuckers. Whenever he's deciding on the name for his vampire, um, in the original notes, he has like Count written there, sometimes at the blank space. Eventually he settled on the name Count Vampire. So basically the guy's name was literally Count Vampire. Like, I mean, how stupid is that? Now, and in his research, he came across the name Dracula, meaning the real ruler, Vlad III Dracula. And in one of the books he uses for research, mentions in there that the word, you know, essentially means a devil. So Stoker, you know, and being a pretty Christian guy, like he, he generally avoided drinking. He definitely is the person that makes Christianity and Christian symbols a big theme in vampire hunting in that novel. Eucharist wafers, you have holy water, you have crucifixes. They make a paste out of holy water and, the, you know, Eucharist wafers and uh, at least one scene that I remember, Lucy's tomb and stuff like that. So Now, Dracula's heroes do use some notably pre-Christian rituals, such as the deployment of garlic. Nonetheless, it's pretty clear that these vampire hunters are waging a holy war 
on behalf of all Christendom, with Dr. Abraham Van Helsing as their general on the field. We are ministers of God's own wish that the world and men for whom his son died will not be given over to monsters whose very existence would defame him. You have allowed us to redeem one soul already, and we go out as old knights of the cross to redeem more. It's striking that this General MacArthur of the War on the Undead is Catholic, given how frosty relations were between Catholics and the largely Protestant population of Victorian England. In fact, relations amongst the various Victorian Protestant factions weren't all that amiable either. Dracula therefore offers a fantasy of Christian unity. Along with these English Anglicans and at least one American Protestant, Van Helsing forges a brotherhood of modern crusaders, following in the footsteps of the old Knights of the Cross. This time though, the crucifix isn't just a symbol stamped on their shields. It's a weapon in and of itself, whose power sounds a lot like the power of an active AR-15. I moved forward with a protective impulse, holding the crucifix and wafer in my left hand. I felt a mighty power fly along my arm, and it was without surprise that I saw the monster cower back before a similar movement made spontaneously by each one of us. In fact, the crucifix takes its place alongside more modern technologies at the Vampire Slayer's disposal, like guns, telegrams, and typewriters. For maybe the first time in the history of the novel, an author presented Christianity as a kind of literary action movie, and audiences loved it. But Stoker's neo-crusaders aren't just a relic of their time. They eerily anticipate the kinds of people who, over a century later, literally buy holy weapons named crusader rifles. He reached out to us through social media when he heard about our crusader uh, rifle. How not? 120 years before QAnon, Stoker's novel enticed readers with the notion of a secret war against the undead, documented in an archive unnoticed by the lamestream media. Today, we're not just going to examine how and why Dracula parallels the monsters that Christian nationalists fear. We're also going to examine how Dracula's holy warriors foreshadow the heroes that Christian nationalists celebrate. But to do that, we have to first take a look at the culture of immersive spectacle that inspired Dracula's conspiratorial Knights of the Cross. In the little exhibition, we find the old and never to be surpassed, ugly lion monsters with the mouth stretched until the head is half off and the eyeballs rolling out of their sockets and the goddess Chin Te with no end of arms and all sorts of horrible old grinners who are to be devoutly worshipped. That's Charles Dickens, writing about the display of Chinese religious sculptures at London's Great Exhibition of 1851. This gigantic collection of arts and crafts from around the world offered an unprecedented chance for Londoners to see cultural artifacts from exotic countries. As Dickens' less-than-cosmopolitan reaction suggests, a huge part of the draw was to gawk at the weird cultural artifacts that Victorians had only read about in the accounts of missionaries and colonial administrators. The exhibition culminated a half-century of Victorian fascination with optical entertainment. Wax effigies, theater productions, the giant panoramas we discussed last episode, 
But at the same time, the exhibition marked the beginning of a new era, an era of essentially commodifying the heathen. Through subsequent imperial exhibitions, the project of colonialism was transformed into a spectacular experience, something consumers paid to enjoy. And in the midst of that, authors like Charles Dickens aspired to create their own great exhibitions of words, literary attempts to replicate the horribly delightful experience of getting up close and personal with the bizarre, the exotic, the heathen. Of all the authors we're looking at in this podcast, Bram Stoker might have been the one most keenly attuned to the power of spectacle. Before he became a legendary horror novelist, Stoker was primarily known for his involvement in the London stage. Not only was he business manager of the famous Lyceum Theatre, but he also managed celebrated actor Henry Irving. Oscar DeMuriel points out, Stoker began writing Dracula in 1890, around the same time that his theatre staged Macbeth. The supernatural horrors of Macbeth, its weird sisters and apparitions, are the 16th century precursor to Dracula's Creatures of the Night. It's only natural that he brought his theatrical flair to his own immersive apocalypse. Reading early reviews of Dracula, it's evident that readers thought the novel was a little too immersive. Mr. Bram Stoker should have labeled his book for strong men only. Or words to that effect, left lying carelessly around, it might get into the hands of your maiden aunt who believes devoutly in the man under the bed. Dracula to such would be manslaughter. Keep Dracula out of the way of nervous children. The story is told in such a realistic way that one accepts its wildest flights of fancy as real facts. The key to Stoker's technique was his mode of presentation. Instead of telling the story straightforwardly, he offers fabricated newspaper articles, journals, telegrams, phonograph transcriptions, and letters. What makes Dracula a little more unique is he's incorporating modern-day technology like typewriters and phonographs to give that style and also placing it based on the you know, details in the book. We know that the plot is essentially taking place in 1893 specifically, so which makes it really modern. So a reader back then, you know, it'd be like today if you lived in New York City and Stoker's describing the Empire State Building and Dracula's in it. Like It feels like something that not only is, is real, but something that you've been in and you see outside your home. In a preface to the Icelandic version of Dracula, Stoker even compares Dracula's crimes to the Jack the Ripper slayings of 1888. It's as if Stoker stumbled on the conceit behind found footage horror movies like Paranormal Activity, where part of the low-res, shaky cam fun is pretending that you're watching fragments of actual events. That's not the only way that the novel's prose recalls the movies, either. Throughout, the novel has a kind of proto-cinematic quality, suggesting Stoker might have seen the first films screened in London. There was a bright, full moon with heavy, black, driving clouds which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. For a moment or two, I could see nothing, as the shadow of a cloud obscured St. Mary's Church and all around it. Then as the cloud passed, I could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view, and as the edge of a narrow band of light, as sharp as a sword cut moved along, the church and the churchyard became gradually visible. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed, for there on our favorite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. 
In these passages, we can see Stoker trying to do for the novel what the Great Exhibition did for the Humble Museum half a century before. Just like the Great Exhibition's designers, Stoker entices his English audience with sights and sounds that were completely alien yet also present right here in the middle of the England they know. And just like those designers, Stoker sold his spectacle as authentic, vetted by an expert, above all, real. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. As we discussed in the last episode, though, what made Dracula seem so disturbingly real wasn't just Stoker's ability to fabricate newspaper articles. It was also the way that the book reminded readers of what they might fear in real life. And insofar as Stoker's secret history casts vampirism as an all-encompassing conspiracy, his great exhibition of horror simulates another kind of conspiracy over which white Christians in the 1890s were increasingly obsessed. His face was a strong and very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples but profusely elsewhere. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where perhaps for centuries to come he might, amongst its teeming millions, satiate his lust for blood and create a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. Like many scholars of Victorian literature and culture, I'm ambivalent about my object of study. On one hand, I'm an unabashed fan of novels like Dracula. But on the other hand, I think we have a moral obligation to recognize how these texts reflect the period's xenophobia, homophobia, sexism, and elitism. And when it comes to British attitudes towards Jewish immigrants in the 1890s, it's clear that this era isn't past us at all. We're going to have to take a look at the ugly attitudes of the 1890s in this next section, so please take a moment to emotionally prepare yourself. In 1892, journalist Arnold White made this shocking statement in his essay The Truth About the Russian Jew. Almost without exception, the press throughout Europe is in Jewish hands and is largely produced by Jewish brains. Almost a decade before the protocols of the elders of Zion began circulating, British anti-Semites proposed a cabal of Jewish financiers who controlled almost all of society. These reactionaries were responding to the thousands of Eastern Europeans, many of them Jews fleeing Russian persecution, who came to Britain from the 1870s onward. In Stoker's era, immigrants from Eastern Europe were being sort of ridiculed as like bringing this contagion with them. There was, for example, a cholera epidemic in the 1890s when Stoker is writing Dracula that some people at least blamed on Eastern Europeans. And that was a lot of the, the, the way that people thought about Eastern Europeans. And so Dracula, in a way, also does present an image of fears of immigration and immigrants. And that's why he hasn't come from Eastern Europe. Because originally, Dracula as a character actually was in Styria, Austria, in Western Europe, not in Eastern Europe. He changes that a little bit later. According to staunch Anglo-Saxon nativists like Arnold White, Jewish migrants were being imported, some by wealthy Jewish benefactors. 
These claims wrote a long history of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, in England specifically. The origins of the Rothschild conspiracy theory, after all, lie in a debunked pamphlet claiming that Nathan Rothschild capitalized on the bloodshed at the Battle of Waterloo. Conspiracy theories, of course, have long offered their own kind of virtual reality. They're a compound of hard fact, hypothesis, and outright hallucination, reassembled into an all-encompassing narrative that explains everything with one simple idea. They are out to get you. But even though this form of alternate reality didn't start in the Victorian period, the 1880s and 1890s obsession with decline gave it extra momentum. The new science of degeneration had an ambition of trying to connect a very broad range of phenomena. Psychologists, art critics, and racial scientists all made the case that the decline of civilization was upon them, tying together everything from the way that modern women dressed to the skull shapes of murderers. They synthesized this mixture of evidence into an overarching narrative about the decline of the white race, a decline which they claimed was at least partially attributable to the Jewish people. Combined with pre-existing conspiracy theories, this insistence that non-Anglo minorities like the Jews were fueling Anglo degeneration further fueled the anti-Semitism that Stoker channels into the King Vampire. Let's turn back to the quotes you just heard. Even before Harker gets a good look at his host, we know that Dracula hails from Eastern Europe, the origin of most Jewish migrants. Once we get to the first passage describing Dracula's face, Harker inspects the count, almost like Dickens contemptuously examining the Chinese idols of the Great Exhibition. Harker studies the count's aquiline nose, domed forehead, and bushy eyebrows, all details that play on stereotypes of Jewish facial features. Then there's the second passage, which comes right at the end of Harker's journal. This is the first time Harker gets a good look at Dracula sleeping in his crypt. Harker realizes that the Count's features have grown younger, and the fresh blood in his lips suggests that this isn't exactly because of cosmetic surgery. Here we get the first hint of the conspiracy that Dracula will spend the rest of the novel trying to execute, colonizing London through turning its denizens into a new race of semi-demons. You could even say that Dracula is the mastermind behind a great replacement. The great replacement? Yeah, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's their electoral strategy. We know that the caravans had, had always been supplied with everything from new Nike sneakers or, or footgear. Yeah, these things were assembled, organized, and then shipped north. And we know that major donors like Mr. Soros have had a hand in these kinds of things. In other words, the notion of a wealthy Jewish villain conspiring to change the demographics of the West didn't start with George Soros. Dracula doesn't just want to populate England with a vampire race, either. In a major subplot, the heroes have to race to locate the properties in London that Dracula has acquired to serve as his resting places. Like the Jewish financiers that people like Arnold White feared, Dracula is buying up England's native soil. Additionally, I'm not the first person to point out that the vampire taste for blood recalls the original anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, the blood libel, a medieval claim that secret Jewish rituals require drinking the blood of kidnapped Christian children. In fact, early in the novel, Dracula literally throws a kidnapped baby to his brides for them to devour. A scene so tasteless, I'm not sure any adaptation has ever reproduced it. Finally, late in the novel, we'll find that 
Dracula's human collaborators include a Jewish agent named Emanuel Hildesheim, whom Harker describes in flagrantly bigoted terms. It's one of the ugliest moments in a novel littered with subtextual racism. As absurd as these anti-Semitic canards might seem, they actually form part of the book's aspiration to realism. After all, the idea of a Jewish cabal glimpsed through obsessively scanning current events seemed quite real to a lot of Britons. Through his collage of fabricated sources, Stoker replicates the way that these conspiracy theories absorbed fragments of facts into their outlandish premises. Look, I'm a lifelong Dracula nut. Home videos of four-year-old me stalking around in a cape with painted blood on my face suggest as much. It doesn't exactly thrill me to admit and confront this novel's anti-Semitism. And as we'll discuss later, I don't think racist propaganda is all that Dracula amounts to. But any responsible fan of this novel has to admit facts. Anti-Semitism is unquestionably part of the complex of feelings that Dracula is meant to trigger. And in the face of Dracula's crypto-Jewish conspiracy, Stoker calls for another kind of conspiracy, that of the vampire hunters themselves. Much like the J6 insurrectionists, Van Helsing and his fellow vampire slayers have something of a martyr complex. As we'll see later, the right now venerates those insurrectionists as saints persecuted by a satanic enemy. And it's the same masochistic sense of heroism that fuels this holy war on the undead. Here's Van Helsing again laying out their mission's eternal stakes. No pun intended. We bear our cross, as his son did in obedience to his will. It may be that we are chosen instruments of his good pleasure, and that we ascend to his bidding as that other through stripes and shame, through tears and blood, through doubts and fears, and all that makes the difference between God and man. You'll have to forgive the musical Terminator 2 reference. But I just can't help hearing something very Terminator-like about Van Helsing's speech here. Like the Terminator who ultimately sacrifices himself to save the future, these vampire hunters are action movie Christs. Christ being that other Van Helsing refers to. But where Arnie's kind of hard to hide in a crowd, these Terminators have to wage their holy war in secret. If we are pledged to set the world free, our toil must be in silence and our efforts all in secret. For in this enlightened age, when men believe not even what they see, the doubting of wise men would be his greatest strength. In another author's hands, this secret scheming could be a turnoff to readers. After all, Van Helsing and company aren't exactly paragons of Victorian morality. They're constantly trespassing, faking their motives, bribing Dracula's human servants, they even break into Lucy's tomb, combining grave robbing and desecration of a corpse. On one side of the tomb, then Helsing on the other. Stoker, however, provides a clever justification for these offenses. Because Dracula's protagonists are true believers in an age of doubt, they have no choice but to work in secret. The forces of godlessness are so overwhelming, so powerful, that serving God in broad daylight would actually get our heroes in trouble. Here I should revisit and clarify one point from last episode about Victorian religion. I said that the Victorians remained pretty pious through the end of the century, and that's true. 
At the same time, though, plenty of those pious Victorians were very concerned about a supposedly catastrophic spike in skepticism and doubt. In other words, the notion of the 19th century being a skeptical era was part of many Victorians' perception of reality, even if the actual facts suggested otherwise. In that light, the holy conspiracy of the vampire slayers offers another effective strategy to reinforce the book's sense of realism. You can picture Stoker putting his arm around the reader's shoulder and saying, Look, we know how things work in the real world, right? In this enlightened, godless age, any fight against an anti-Christian conspiracy would require a conspiracy of its own. At the end of the novel, Stoker offers one final wink at the reader in this regard, when Jonathan Harker is looking back at the record of events. In all the mass of material of which the record is composed, there is hardly one authentic document, nothing but a mass of typewriting, except the later notebooks of Mina and Seward and myself, and Van Helsing's memorandum. We could hardly ask anyone, even did we wish to, to accept these as proofs of so wild a story. This is a canny bit of reverse psychology on Stoker's part. He's asking us whether we have the faith to accept his proofs. Of course, whether or not we do, we'll determine whether we're on the side of the holy conspiracy or on the side of unbelief. And since unbelief is Dracula's most potent weapon, good Christian readers had best choose wisely. In the many, many adaptations and spin-offs of Dracula, filmmakers occasionally run with the trope of the holy conspiracy. The 1973 movie The Satanic Rites of Dracula actually features a collaboration between Van Helsing and MI6 to defeat, you guessed it, the Satanic Rites of Dracula worshippers. So you sent an operative in undercover? Yes, Hanson. He witnessed a couple of uh, pretty weird sessions. Hear ye great demons of hell. Watch over these, thy disciples. The 1992 adaptation, Bram Stoker's Dracula, gives a pithy line to Van Helsing, played by Anthony Hopkins, about what it feels like to be one of Christ's secret soldiers, committing acts that, to the rest of the world, would seem insane. We've all become God's madmen. And the recent 2020 Dracula TV series even has Dracula face off against a whole convent of secretive vampire-slaying nuns. I don't know about you girls, I do love a bit of fur. What these adaptations are missing, though, is the invitation for the audience to join the conspiracy. Today, however, that invitation is resounding throughout the religious right, and a new generation of holy conspirators is answering it with horrifying enthusiasm. CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Committee. It's a kind of comic con for right-wingers, a known destination for hobnobbing, buying paraphernalia, and listening to the latest in right-wing thought. At the 2022 CPAC conference, attendees were treated to a curious exhibit. In a mock prison set, an actor playing a J6 insurrectionist wore an orange jumpsuit. Viewers tuned into headsets and listened to testimony of imprisoned January 6th participants. 
blurring the line between fiction and reality even further. The prisoner was played by an actual J6 participant, Brendan Straka, who avoided imprisonment by turning in information about his co-conspirators. At one point, Marjorie Taylor Greene got into the cage and prayed with the prisoner, while others chanted the Lord's Prayer. Was this a real prayer for a real MAGA activist playing a prisoner? A fake prayer for the fake martyrs Straka was portraying, both at the same time? What's clear is that everyone present was enjoying the immersive spectacle, and inevitably, it only hardened their resolve. CPAC's prison installation is only one of the most theatrical examples of a right-wing culture demolishing the boundaries between what's actual, what's hypothetical, and what's impossible. Anyone who's been skimming developments on the right over the past five years knows about QAnon, the movement built on the notion that Donald Trump, along with a secret team of patriots, is successfully waging war against the satanic, pedophilic, far-left, deep state. This war will supposedly culminate in The Storm, an event that will involve arrests of Democrats and, presumably, the installation of Trump as president for life. As many journalists have pointed out, a big part of QAnon's appeal is the combination of Hollywood action movie tropes with an interactive fan community. In fact, a slogan from the 1996 movie White Squall provided the QAnon rallying cry, when we go one, we go all. In the words of game designer Reed Berkowitz, QAnon amounts to the gamification of propaganda. True believers scour Q's cryptic posts in combination with decontextualized bits of news to piece together the secret battle and even participate in it. In 2019, one charter school in California had to cancel a fundraiser because QAnoners interpreted one of James Comey's tweets as proof that a terrorist attack was imminent at the school. Now, if you're a very close reader of Stoker's novel, your ears might have perked up when you heard the phrase, the gamification of propaganda. And that's because in the novel, Van Helsing actually describes the hero's contest with Dracula as a kind of chess game in which the competitors are racing to lay claim to the souls of humanity. This modern crusade, in other words, isn't just a matter of faith, but also of fun. From the inside, QAnon feels like the horrifyingly pleasurable sensation that readers of Dracula feel as they follow along with Harker and Van Helsing and the rest of the gang's hunt for Dracula. Just like Dracula's vampire hunters, Q's disciples do their own research. They decode puzzles and assemble an archive that looks a lot like Dracula's compilation of sources. And because QAnon makes its believers feel like they're starring in the most epic Hollywood blockbuster of all time, even Trump's 2020 loss hasn't been enough to stop it. In fact, allegations of voter fraud have only enabled the movement's mutation into an even more outlandish mythology. Trump is the biological son of General Patton and first cousins to John John and the, and the Kennedys. Meanwhile, far-right extremists are plotting the holy conspiracy that QAnon only dreams about. Groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys have infiltrated educational, judicial, and electoral systems. And of course, the January 6th hearings have uncovered a conspiracy involving the former president himself to change the 2020 election results. Or, as the conspirators themselves put it, to stop the steal. 
Convinced of their own righteousness, these groups have internalized QAnon's core premise. In an age dominated by godless liberal fiends, Christian patriots must execute their plans underground and out of sight. But if figures like the J6 insurrectionists are the scrappy underdogs of this epic, who are the villains? The government is full of vampires, and they are trying to suck the lifeblood out of the economy. That's Glenn Beck speaking way at the dawn of the Obama era in March 2009. As Dr. Andrew Whitehead mentioned last episode, the right's vehemently aggressive response to Obama's election marked the start of MAGA religion as we know it. And amidst this groundswell of rage, Beck's rant might be the exact moment when vampires entered the Christian nationalist consciousness. A banking friend told me over the weekend, I was standing at church and we were talking after church, and he said, Oh, Glenn, you know, you start stop being such a sky is falling, the sky is falling. These banks, they're going to look to pay out the, the pay back the bailout money as fast as they can. I just went, uh-huh, sure. You think they're going to take the, the fangs out of the necks of the banks and the businesses? I don't think so. Today, over 13 years later, vampires are possibly the foremost creatures in Christian nationalism's gallery of monsters. And the king vampire himself often takes center stage by name. On right-wing Twitter, you can find endless variations on the sentiment that telling the truth to Democrats or liberals is like showing a crucifix to Dracula. Alex Jones in particular seems to have a soft spot for this trope. So it's a bunch of vampires eating each other. Trump just wants to connect with a spirit that is good. He's, not, he's the opposite of a vampire. He needed to go to that rally. They're like Count Dracula being drug out of his, his keep at high noon and his coffin being thrown open. The sunshine of freedom and Americana becoming popular again and our will not being broken and being proud and having success. In the run-up to the midterms, Marjorie Taylor Greene jokingly, but also not jokingly, compared congressional Democrats to vampires and other night creatures. Nancy Pelosi will keep us in the House chamber voting sometimes until one or two o'clock in the mornings. And I couldn't figure out why. And I'm like, maybe it's just because they're kind of night creatures, like witches and vampires and ghouls. Okay, <laughs> they kind of are. These Dracula and vampire illusions are delivered in a semi-ironic tone. But the nature of the right means that the irony thinly veils an entirely sincere perspective. And beyond these smirking references, one finds Dracula barely disguised as some of the fiends that the right loves to hate the most. Chief among them is, of course, Jewish billionaire George Soros, whom 21st century anti-Semites place at the center of a conspiracy to drain America's resources and replace its population with an alien race. Before Soros, of course, conservatives accused Barack Obama of being an almost supernaturally gifted hypnotist, scheming to bring millions of Muslims to the United States, a God-hating monster who might even be the literal Antichrist. And as for Nancy Pelosi, whose husband was violently assaulted just days before the time of my recording this, well, here's self-identified prophet Julie Green's hot take on Pelosi's nighttime activities. And the blood is dripping from her hands. She loves to drink the little children's blood. So what's going on here? Have Christian nationalists been reading Dracula for ideas? It's actually not unlikely that at least some of their favorite authors are. 
Mike Duran, an evangelical horror novelist who routinely disparages the woke agenda, has enthused about Dracula's pro-Christian message. On a bigger scale, Frank Peretti, the enormously popular Christian horror author, has specifically cited Dracula as one of his inspirations. Then there's Drac's influence on one of the most popular pieces of evangelical propaganda ever, Left Behind, the best-selling series of books about the end times. Over seven years of peace. Over seven years. This marks the beginning of the rise of the Antichrist. Don't worry. This will be completely painless. After all, I am not a monster. In Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' fantasy, the Antichrist's literal name is Nikolai Carpathia, as in the Carpathian Mountains, where Dracula hails from. Carpathia is a charismatic Eastern European who ends up being a vessel for Satan himself. Meanwhile, the book's heroes also replicate the counter-conspiracy of the good guys, who have to work behind the scenes and bend the rules to take on their enemy. It's clear that Dracula and his foils are an important model for Left Behind's cast of characters. Jesus Christ. The only way to beat you in this life or the next. The last thing you will ever see is my power over his. Beyond that, though, the association of vampires with aristocratic secrecy, combined with the right's need to make the impossible feel real, has revived the notion of dueling conspiracies. As I outlined in the last episode, today's white Christians are now living through the decline that the Victorians only imagined. And regardless of whether they've read Stoker's novel, Christian nationalists face this crisis with pop culture memories of Victorian declinism, routed through countless Hollywood adaptations. And those adaptations have cemented Dracula's legacy as a quintessentially anti-Christian villain the monster that most powerfully threatens all that pious Americans hold dear. And at some subliminal level, those adaptations have also preserved the notion of the coded Jewish blood-sucking puppet master, charismatic, secretive, and using his extensive influence to drain the life force of white Christendom. The report that you showed have talked about the blood of young children being the secret to anti-aging. And why does nobody ask, where does blood come from? How do you get the blood of young children? And does it matter if the children are younger and younger and younger? In reviving the King Vampire, today's Dracula reboot also revives the modern-day Crusaders tasked with stopping him. You can see this self-aggrandizing impulse in the so-called Crusader rifles I mentioned earlier. Perhaps the most obvious example of how Christian nationalists today joined Van Helsing and company in revering the old Knights of the Cross. But you can also see this self-glorification in places like the 2019 editorial where conservative pastor Bo Wagner compared Democrat John Rogers to Dracula and himself to Van Helsing. Or the picture of white nationalist Nick Fuentes at an anti-vax rally in November 2021, hoisting a crucifix with light and shadow dramatically playing across his face. In the media ecosystem of the right, there's no shortage of outlets where politicians, influencers, and gun manufacturers hail themselves and their audiences as holy vampire hunters. GOP midterm ads megachurch live streams, Instagram pictures of AR-15s adorned with Bible verses, even commercials for testosterone pills or pillows. You could call all of that imagery authoritarian advertising. 
a combination of Trump personality cult and multi-level marketing. We're going to make America great again. I love you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 45th president of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump! This authoritarian advertising is so immersive that it's created a virtual reality in its own right, one that roughly approximates the world the rest of us live in, but that differs in one key respect. It highlights the secret battle that woke America is too dumb or too corrupt to perceive, a battle between the real Americans who stand for the flag and kneel for the cross and a conspiratorial darkness in league with the prince of darkness that works against them. Immersed in that battle, engulfed in fear of the king vampire, the consumers of authoritarian advertising are motivated not just to imagine themselves as modern crusaders, but to act like them. Selectively edited videos, news articles, live streams, and live prison dioramas entice vulnerable and impressionable people with the promise of hidden, life-changing knowledge. Just like the train documents and newspaper fragments that Van Helsing's crew scours for evidence of Dracula's movements. Christian nationalism's foot soldiers piece together information in order to game out how they should respond to the leftist enemy, just like Van Helsing's crusaders. Unlike today's Christian nationalists, however, Van Helsing and company ceased their quest once the book was over and readers returned to real life. In contrast, today's holy conspirators see that quest as real life itself, and they're taking their augmented reality game to terrifying lengths. On Saturday morning, in a quiet, leafy neighborhood in Pittsburgh, a hateful man entered a synagogue and brutally and methodically murdered 11 worshipers. Would confess a stabbing his kids because he thought they had what he calls serpent DNA. Our new twist in the Nashville Christmas Day explosion. Investigators are now exploring several conspiracy theories as potential motives, including evidence the bomber believed in lizard people. It's hard to know what to say in the face of such horrific deeds. What's clear, though, is that these perpetrators never consider themselves the villain, and they never consider the merits of counter evidence presented to them. Why would they? They're 21st century crusaders, Van Helsing's descendants, keeping the faith in an age of doubt. And as such, counter evidence only deserves the response that Van Helsing offers at the end of the novel when he declares it irrelevant how outlandish outsiders might find the novel's record of events. Like Van Helsing, today's holy conspirators can simply scoff in response, we want no proofs, we ask none to believe us. After all, the high offered by participating in and inflicting violence on behalf of this holy conspiracy is too strong to relinquish, resembling not just Van Helsing's chess game, but maybe an exhilarating video game, an RPG, or a first-person shooter. A widely popular live streaming service, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, has confirmed it was their service the suspect used to live broadcast the shootings. Officials say from the moment the suspect, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, pulled into the Tops Market parking lot, he was live streaming what he was doing. Now, to be clear, there's a whole flourishing subculture of self-identified vampires who don't express their identity by stabbing people or blowing up buildings. 
Ironically, those who think of themselves as vampires are more likely to show common sense than those who think of themselves as vampire hunters. And in their addiction to the game-like delights of Van Helsing's modern crusade, the latter return us to the horrors of Stoker's novel, and the possibility that those horrors originate not in Christendom's enemies, but in Christendom itself. Recall, if you will, one of cultural critic Jeffrey Cohen's monster theses. Fear of the monster is a kind of desire. As we've already seen, Stoker draws on anti-Semitic stereotypes to fashion his monster. But when we look closer at the text of Dracula, we find that Dracula also embodies a lot of qualities that the book's heroes themselves embrace, sometimes with disturbing enthusiasm. Dracula may not cast a reflection, but maybe that's because he himself is the mirror reflection of the novel's noble crusaders. Consider first that the protagonists draw blood themselves. During the scene where the slayers stake Lucy, one of the quote-unquote good guys, Dr. Seward, describes hammering the mercy-bearing stake into Lucy's heart, with blood squirting up all around it. In the world of the novel, this is, of course, a necessity. But given that the scene is told from the perspective of one of the good guys, it's a little disturbing just how much Seward's narration relishes his description of the bloodletting. Then, there's the fact that the good guys treat Mina as a hostage herself. When Dracula establishes a psychic connection to her, Van Helsing purposely endangers her life, bringing her closer and deeper into Dracula's territory to take advantage of her ability to see the enemy's location. Then, consider Lord Godalming, one of Lucy's suitors. Godalming's an aristocrat whose money funds the hunt for Dracula. He's not above using his position to grease the wheels of society, essentially bribing police to let him break into Dracula's lair. But then Dracula himself is an aristocrat who uses his own privilege to treat all of Transylvania as his private property. Of course, because Godalming's one of the heroes, his entitlement is surely justified, right? Maybe not. Because when we consider the supposed contrast between the heroes and the villain, we need to take a closer look at Dracula's actions and his own motivations for doing what he does. The only time Dracula hints at those motives is when he says to the heroes that he has, quote, spread his revenge out over centuries. What is that revenge? The answer may lie in Dracula's own history as a Transylvanian warrior king who defended his own people against the Turks. Who more gladly than we throughout the four nations received the bloody sword, or at its warlike call flocked quicker to the standard of the king? When was redeemed that great shame of my nation, the shame of Kasavo, when the flags of the Wallach and the Magyar went down beneath the crescent? Who but one of my own race who has voivode crossed the Danube and beat the Turk on his own ground? This was a Dracula, indeed. Dracula delivers the monologue you just heard when Jonathan Harker first meets him at his castle. Although he pretends he's talking about an ancestor, he's really talking about himself. He boasts that he rode under the flag of the Magyars, which, like many European flags, included a cross. That means that Dracula literally cut his teeth slaughtering Muslims under the banner of the cross. Despite rescuing Christian Europe, though, 
Dracula seems to feel that his bloodline has been overshadowed by less worthy dynasties. In the monologue, he goes on a long rant about how his ancestors were the mightiest warriors of all the European tribes, a tribute to Transylvanian blood and soil that foreshadows the talking points of 1930s fascism. Then Dracula boasts, I am Sir, the Zekis and the Dracula as their heart's blood. Their brains and their swords can boast a record that mushroom growths like the Habsburgs and the Romanovs can never reach. In other words, Dracula is a kind of Christian nationalist for his time, one who seems to resent other Christian nations for not giving his people the respect they deserve. But... After fighting, the Turks awakened his taste for blood. This Christian nationalist didn't stop there. Van Helsing later says that Dracula sought even more power by entering a school for warlocks called the Sholomance. It's actually at this school, according to legend, that Dracula seems to have sold his soul to the devil in exchange for vampiric powers. In a supreme irony, fighting for Christ led Dracula straight into the arms of the devil. All of this returns to the question of why Dracula wants revenge against Britain specifically. Maybe he means that he wants revenge against the Turkish troops he once fought. Only, why would he need revenge if he already defeated them, and why would he go to Britain to execute it? Here's my theory. Dracula wants revenge on one of Christendom's westernmost nations, which got all the glory for defending Christian Europe even though it did next to nothing to aid Dracula on Europe's eastern edge. To my knowledge, few if any scholars have proposed this explanation for why Dracula wants to conquer Britain, but isn't it plausible that he resents Britain for becoming the center of Christendom when, in his opinion, Transylvanians were the ones who actually protected the borders of Christendom? If we linger on this hypothesis, it is indeed striking how Dracula's quest for revenge mirrors that of our quintessentially English hero, Jonathan Harker, towards the end of the novel. At this point, Harker's desperate to stop his wife Mina from turning into a vampire. As Harker vents to Dr. Van Helsing, he exclaims, I care for nothing now except to wipe out this brute from the face of creation. I would sell my soul to do it. It's a line that reveals just how muddied Jonathan's motives have become. Does he fight for the glory of God, for his wife's honor, or for his own sense of personal grievance? At any rate, this appetite for vengeance invites comparison to Dracula, who sold his own soul to accomplish his own purposes. All of which suggests that Jonathan's own bloodlust might not be satisfied by simply beheading his enemy. I'm not sure whether Bram Stoker intended to suggest that Dracula is the mirror image of Christian violence. Certainly as an Irishman, Stoker's support for the empire might have competed with a keen awareness of the horrors that the English inflicted upon his countrymen, not least in the name of their version of Christianity. In some sense though, it doesn't matter whether Stoker intentionally echoed this history or not. Art has a curious habit of exceeding the creator's wishes. And in this case, Stoker's vampire parable ends with a quietly disturbing message for the holy conspiracy. 
cosplaying as God's chosen warriors will warp your sense of what's real. Just listen to Jonathan Harker at the novel's conclusion talk about revisiting Castle Dracula with his fellow protagonists seven years after the novel's events have taken place. In the summer of this year, we made a journey to Transylvania and went over the old ground which was and is to us so full of vivid and terrible memories. It was almost impossible to believe that the things which we had seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears were living truths. Every trace of all that had been was blotted out. The castle stood as before, reared high above a waste of desolation. What strikes me about this passage is how weird it is for Harker, as well as the other holy conspirators, to want to return to Castle Dracula in the first place. Why revisit the scene of your greatest trauma? It's almost as if Harker and company want to torture themselves with their vivid and terrible memories, just so they can verify that those memories actually took place. It's as if they're haunted by a need to prove their bizarre adventures to themselves and maybe relive the thrill of decapitating the Count. Because without that reminder, they'd be just a gang of sadistic weirdos tormented by figments of their imagination. When I reached this point in Dracula, I can't help but be reminded of the holy conspiracy in our own time. The MAGA warriors obsessed with reliving the thrill of the 2016 election, or bringing back the Cold War, or World War II, or even the Civil War, with the Confederates winning this time. I can't help but think that Stoker correctly anticipated the effect that national decline would have on angry white Christians. After all, the holy conspiracies that Christian nationalists obsess over provide the exact same function as the vampire slayers return to Castle Dracula. The half-truths and fabrications of right-wing delusions reinforce the idea that the monster really is out there and that violence really was and is indispensable. In this respect, today's Christian nationalists mirror Stoker's band of vampire slayers. But don't they also mirror the king vampire himself, obsessing over old battles, seeking out secret knowledge to prove that he's more than a backwards-looking maniac? The end of the novel leaves me suspecting that these Knights of the Cross retrace Dracula's footsteps in more ways than one. And it also leaves me fearing that the quest of today's holy conspirators to prove themselves, whether through fake news or real bloodshed, may only be getting started. For some of this series listeners, the idea that Dracula holds a mirror to Christian nationalism may be a stretch. It may seem like I've undermined or outright contradicted my earlier acknowledgement of the novel's anti-Semitism. But one of the reasons Dracula's lasted for so long is that the novel has a kind of dream logic. It's contradictory, ambiguous, open to interpretation. And in that light, it's worth closing with a reminder that the King Vampire is also a King Shapeshifter. He can appear as a bat, a wolf, a cloud of mist, or perhaps as the foreign boogeyman of anti-Jewish Anglo-Saxon churchgoers, baiting them into becoming the worst versions of themselves. Perhaps this is Dracula's final joke, 
the final move in his chess game, one that he may live to make again. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.